Amen. Yeah, it's okay, man. I'll just probably be struck by lightning now, so thanks. All right, if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, we, uh, every now and then we have a topical series, but we are actually just trying to go straight through Scripture. We believe every word is God-inspired, and so we'll read every word, even when we get to the section where there's big old genealogies, and we'll read all that too, so it'll be, be wondrous. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can always pretend you're going potty, which sounds such like a dad. Uh, pretend you're going potty and grab Bibles out on the back table back there. There's free Bibles. You can take them. Um, figure if we're going to give something away, we might as well give away Bibles. Um, the, uh, today we're in chapter 4, actually the middle or near kind of the last two-thirds, so to speak, of a conversation between God and a man, the perfect, all-knowing God and this ignorant, broken guy. And the funny thing is, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation, I've had lots because I've learned, well, I used to be a really bad listener, where you've ever had a conversation with someone who just, you know they're not listening to you, but as you're talking to them, they make responses and stuff. And my wife, when I was um, young and impetuous, not that I'm still not, but when I was young with my wife, I was the guy that uh, was a terrible listener. So when my wife, at the time we were dating, um, was talking to me, I'd have a pen or something like that, and she'd be talking, and I'd, you know, be like going like this, doing something to distract myself, not purposefully, and she'd always say, are you listening? And immediately I had this special thing in my head, which most males do, where they have a recorder of like the last ten seconds of what was said. And so I just accessed that recorder, and the words would come out like, yeah, I'm listening, you said, blah, 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 blah. And for a while, that works, and they're kind of stupid, like, okay, I guess you are listening. So you continue on, and you can fake them out. After a while, they realize that you have this recorder, and it doesn't work. But this conversation between God and Moses is a lot like that, and I've only, I'm realizing this more and more as I sit on, on these conversations with God in, in Scripture, where Moses really isn't listening to what God's saying. But he continues to speak a heck of a lot. And I think, like I spoke last week, the biggest problem I think we have with our interaction with God and relationship is that we don't shut up, honestly. We don't listen enough. And God has spoken and continues to speak a lot. And we don't really either A, believe what he says, or B, don't even hear it half the time. And so we come in kind of eavesdropping on this conversation between Moses and God, where God is making these commands and giving these promises, and Moses isn't really paying attention to what he's saying. And God says, I want you to go. I'm going to deliver my people. Yeah, I'm going to deliver them. And I'm going to save them and put in this land. And Moses is like, yeah, and I'm going to send you. And he's like, uh, wait a second. And I think Moses, as you see this conversation unfold, he's like, well, God, have you really thought this plan through? Because you're not really um, maybe understanding your people exactly. You're not understanding me exactly. You don't really get what you're asking me to do, which sounds an awful lot like, honestly, myself. Maybe you're way hyper more spiritually you know, than me, but it sounds a lot like me. And what I mean is that we spend way more time, I spend way more time looking at 
what I can or can't do, the obstacles in the way, the reasons why I'm not able to follow you, God, in these areas, as opposed to God and who He is and what He has done. Because those are really two very different ways of living. And if you spend all your time making decisions based off of what you are capable of, what your own personal history shows, good luck. Because I know for me that's a pretty despairing place to make decisions from. And I probably won't make very many decisions that are right. And so, to help Moses here, to encourage him, and he he doesn't rebuke him, but he he graciously comes alongside and he says, okay, I'm going to give you some signs. Moses doesn't ask for them. He says, I'm going to give you some stuff. An apologetics 101 class to teach you what to say and how to say it as you go before these people and you believe, Moses, that they're not going to listen to you. Because he says, go to these people, tell them God showed up in a burning bush, which is strange. Okay? God showed up in this burning bush in the middle of a barren mountain. Yes, he did. And this is what he told me. He's going to save you. He's going to save us from 400 years of oppression where they're throwing our babies in the Nile River. They're going to save us. He's going to save you. And he's going to take you out. Not only that, you're going to be coming out with uh, the Egyptians who are going to give you everything they own. They're going to empty their wallets for you. They're going to go to the ATMs and start giving you money. And you're going to come into a land that right now is full of all kinds of nations that want to kill you. But that's what I'm giving you. And it has all kinds of good stuff there. That's what God told me to tell you. And at some level, you kind of go, yeah, that's a lot to ask. And Moses says, that's a lot to ask. And so God says, I'm going to give you these signs. And the strange thing is, Jesus, uh, if you ever read through the Gospels and you read about Jesus and the idea of signs, you'll see that um, the Jews were always asking, or everyone really was always asking Jesus for a sign. Give me a sign. And the strange thing is, Jesus was doing all kinds of signs. He was giving blind people the ability to see. He was crippled people that have been crippled for like, you know, 70 years. He's like, walk, go ahead. You know, he's healing, raises a dead guy who's been dead in a tomb for three days and stinking like, oh, get out, raises him, come out, Lazarus, and he's alive. And they're still like, well, give us a sign that you are who you say you are. And every time they actually asked, Jesus said, no, I'm not giving you a sign. When I raise from the dead, then you'll know. You'll know I am who I said I am. And so I started thinking about signs and the reason why we ask for signs. And I'm convinced that just like Jesus, he didn't give a sign simply because he knew it was in the heart of men. And I think that our hearts typically ask for signs not so we can confirm why we should follow Jesus, but more so we can affirm why we won't. Because I'm not convinced we actually think the signs will come through. They're excuses. They're simply excuses. And we all have excuses. And so, as proof to kind of help with the excuses that Moses is using, um, why the people aren't going to listen to him, God gives these signs. And you kind of think for a moment that maybe Moses is just worried about the people. He's not really demonstrated his own you know, unbelief here. He's just, well, they're really not going to listen, God. You need to really help them. I'm not the problem here. They won't listen. And God did give Moses one sign. It was interesting. If you, if you go back in Exodus 3, in verse 12, he said this. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to send you in there. And he says this in verse 12. He said, but I'll be with you. 
And this shall be a sign for you, Moses. This will, this will confirm it for you so you have no excuses. This will be a sign for you that I have sent you, colon, so a little colon means, here's the sign. And the sign is, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the sign that God said will be proof that I am who I say I am, I'm going to be doing this. The proof will require Moses actually take steps of faith before the proof comes. That Moses will actually have to go in and win, do what he's supposed to do, be embarrassed if that's what it takes, whatever, stand before these people who rejected him already, do all these things, experience the deliverance, and that will prove that you're being delivered. And so for Moses, he's a little apprehensive at best about believing that God's going to come through. The one thing I really like about Moses, though, is he's a real guy. He is just like me. Hopefully he's just like you. I don't know about you, but I sometimes think of these Old Testament guys as these heroic, spirit-filled giants, kind of like I think all other Christians are, you know? We kind of think that all other Christians have it together. All other Christians are, like, praying way more than us. All other Christians are, like, you know, just faith-filled freaks all the time. No doubts, no concerns, no nothing. You see a guy, and they're like, yeah, praise Jesus. And you're like, how can you always be that happy? That just can't be the case. Moses isn't like that. Moses is reluctant. It takes, like, he doesn't follow God the first time. He doesn't follow God the second time. He doesn't follow God the third time. And this is a guy who's standing before a burning bush talking to him. Okay? Now, if he's like that, then I can have some kind of peace that it's okay to ask God some questions. It's okay to have some doubts. It's okay to look maybe at my circumstances and go, I don't know God. And not expect God to go, you idiot! Well, you know, what are you doing? That's not what God does here. He's very gracious. He's very patient. He does get angry at one point. But he's very slow to anger. He is very very slow to anger. And the other thing I like about Moses is that when he has a complaint with God, when he has a disagreement with how things are going to work out, when he's got, you know, kind of some doubts that the plan's going to work, he doesn't write a book about it. He doesn't blog about it. He doesn't, you know, go on a talk show and explain why God is so messed up and why the God of the Bible is this. He simply goes to God. He has a conversation with God who is not afraid of the doubts who is not afraid of the questions, who is not afraid to give you even some mysterious answers, but he'll give you enough information that you need to know, period. We're pretty much on a need-to-know basis with God, I figure. He gives us what we need to know. But he's not afraid to entertain those questions. And so Moses here is going to be kind of coddled by God a little bit as he explains, well, Here's why they're not going to listen. And really at the core of it, Moses has his own excuses. And so the excuses that he's kind of pretending are Israel's excuses for why they won't believe are really his own. They're really his own. And they're ours. So when, we, when all is said and done, when you leave here, here's what I hope God kind of speaks to you. Is that what excuses are you using to not follow God? Because it's something. And it's not just follow God into the kingdom. It's follow God into what he's calling you to do. Because he's called each of us to something. I don't think we actually approach life that way. I don't think we do. We're going to read Exodus 4, 1 through 17, and then we'll get into it and see this amazing passage that's probably very common 
because, well, they made movies about it, Prince of Egypt and all that stuff. So, Exodus chapter 4, and we just ended in chapter 3 where he basically says they're going to empty their uh, wallets to you and give you all kinds of money, and that will prove that, they're going to, um, that you're going to be delivered. And he says, the people are going to listen to you, but Pharaoh's not going to listen to you, but don't worry, it's all going to work out because I'm going to strike him. I'm going to slap him upside the face. It's going to be brutal. But that's not coming until later, Moses. Exodus chapter 4 says this. After God telling him that, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Girly man. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and caught it, which I don't really know how you're doing. You know, so like probably jumps in his hand or something. Who knows? But put it in your hand and caught it and became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. Then he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he puts his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. He says, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe, they may believe the latter sign. And if... Verse 9, they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. We'll stop there and read the rest in a second. So Moses starts this passage by basically saying, Behold, they're not going to listen. This is after God just says, Hey, they're going to listen to you. And so he begins his entire call with disagreeing with God, which is just really not wise. Um, You're wrong, God. They're not going to listen. And... He doesn't believe at the core of it that if he goes, he's been given the name of God, and he doesn't believe that if he goes and name drops the name of God, they're going to be like, okay, let's go. It's not, and let's, don't mistake it, the name of God isn't like some secret password where he's like, Yahweh. They're like, okay, it's Yahweh, we'll go. Okay? Anytime you get secret passwords, secret handshakes, you know, weird little signs, be careful. The sweatsuit's coming out, the Kool-Aid, the comet's going to go by, cultish, okay? No secret name, no secret password, but the name of God, the fact that he's going in the name of God and the character of God, going to tell what this God is like, he still goes, I don't think they're going to believe. We have to go, why? Why would he think that? Well, first of, all, first of all, remember the last time he was there where he tried to interject for God and try to deliver them, he was trying to solve a dispute between two Israelites fighting. And he said, hey, quit fighting. And they looked at him and said, who are you? Are you going to kill us like you did that other guy? You jammed in the sand you think no one knows about? Who made you prince and judge? Well, now God has made him judge. And so for him to come in and say, well, God made me judge, so probably not going to go over real well with these guys. Okay, not going to trust him. It's been 40 years. 
but you're probably not going to trust him. And the second thing is that if you notice in the book of Exodus, the first two chapters, kind of like the whole book of Esther, the name of God and God himself is never really mentioned. And so this culture is in, very, in a very real way, other than the, the nursemaid scene in, in chapter 1, other than that, God, it's, it's a pretty paganized culture. And so for him to start going, hey, God showed up, God showed me this, they're going to probably say, what God are you talking about? In fact, Pharaoh even says that. Who is this God? We have like 2,000 of them. Is this like 2,001? Who is this? So he has some natural and understandable fears that they're not going to believe what he says because they've not heard about God for a long time. So he says, without saying, okay, I'm going to give you some signs that will help you. Without Moses saying, I need some signs, he just says, okay, look, what's in your hand? He says, it's a staff. And so put that picture of that staff up there. The, the staff he's talking about, it can be translated rod, it can be translated like big stick. Most likely it's like a shepherd's crook that he has. And the shepherd's crook were really interesting because they were uh, very important to a shepherd uh, for both identification and protection. For identification, they would cut little carvings, you know, that they put on there of, just to represent who they were, how old they were, just all kinds of identifying marks. Plus, they're probably bored out in the rock sometimes watching the sheep. So they would carve it and it would become a part of who they were. Okay? And it was like carrying a wallet around in a lot of, in a lot of ways. They identify that not only were you a shepherd, but a specific shepherd with a specific name, because it was etched on there. Second thing was it was used for protection. And a lot of shepherds have, especially in this culture, it's a nomadic culture, so a lot of people have it. It's like carrying around a sidearm. So you can imagine, like, he's got some serious, like, bow staff skills or some kind of skills where he can, like, you know, use this thing to defend off wolves and everything, but even people. Okay, he's probably pretty, na- after 40 years of, like, learning how to spin the stick and stuff, he's probably pretty good. So God begins this whole conversation with saying, okay, you want to follow me? Throw down your staff. And in a very symbolic way, very real way, he's saying, I want you to throw down, first of all, your identity, and secondly, your protection. Throw it down right now. Because if we're going to start anything, you want to really talk about following me, that's what, that's the starting point. This is no longer about Moses. This is not about you being able to protect yourself. This is about me being in charge. So much so that that staff becomes identified throughout the rest of Exodus with God and not Moses. Even as you go further into the rest of the Pentateuch, that staff is the power of God. It is honored as God's direct power and identification. And so that's how the conversation starts. And then the staff, he throws it down. He's like, okay, whatever. Throws the staff down. Probably wants to hold on to it because there's a burning bush there. But he throws it down. Turns into a snake. Probably a cobra. Most likely. And that's kind of a cool trick. You know, think about it. And you think about it. He could have turned it anything. You know, it's like, throws it down. It's like a pig. You know, it would be kind of strange. But he could, you know, throw it down. It could turn into a bunch of mice or like beetles. That would be kind of cool. A bunch of beetles. You know, so he... The trick isn't so important as what it turns into, because what he's doing, God says, okay, I'm giving you this sign so that they will believe you. They will believe that I appear. They will believe that I'm going to deliver them. And one of the biggest excuses they're going to have is, how is anyone going to deliver us from this guy? This guy is a man to be feared, that being the Pharaoh. This guy has control over our lives. This guy is 
throw in our babies by command. He has a national policy of, hey, if you're Egyptian, grab the little kid next to you and toss him in the Nile. That's the policy for this nation. It is the most powerful nation on earth. And some guy comes in with his staff and says, God's going to deliver you. They're a little fearful and rightfully so. But he turns this into this cobra for a very particular reason to speak to that very fear. The reason people don't follow God in this case is they're scared. In this case, they're scared because their oppressor is too big, too great, the obstacle's too mighty. So it's turned into this cobra. So if you look into Egyptian culture a little bit, every pharaoh wore a crown, a headdress of sorts. And they think, oh, it's up there, cool. And it was actually called uh, Uraeus. And depicted on the Uraeus was a cobra with its kind of open as ready to attack. And it was symbolic in many ways of the authority, the supreme rulership of the pharaoh. And it represented directly this god, or actually a goddess, called Buto. I don't know if I pronounce it right, but we'll go with it, because I don't know how many people are going to be talking about it too often. But it was this cobra goddess who was completely... Um, in charge of protecting the Pharaoh. And it would, in many ways, look around and destroy Pharaoh's enemies by its fiery look, but also its fiery spit. So it's like, you know, like burning anyone that's in its way. Obviously symbolic in many ways. But the fact that it turns into this cobra, and he says, okay, grab by the tail and turn into a staff, God, in many ways, is speaking directly to the fears of the Israelites, but also the fear of Moses. Because Moses, remember, his first question is, who am I? Who am I to go up against this Pharaoh? Who am I to try and address this oppressor that has been killing my people for 400 years? I am nothing compared to him. And he's like, oh no. You are nothing, but I'm going to make you something. And in his power, he declares very vividly through this sign, not only am I authoritative over all creation, which includes men, but authoritative over this particular man. And so you need not be fearful. You need not to be scared. Because the greatest power you can possibly imagine, I'm going to crush and I'm going to destroy. And then he goes on to the second miracle, if you will. Doesn't even pause. Doesn't even say, huh? Pretty good, Moses. Huh? What do you think? That'll get him, huh? That'll make him believe, huh? Because the Israelites are like, Okay, we'll buy that. Maybe. I don't know. He says, well, again, put your hand in your cloak. And so we go on to the second sign. And so he puts his hand in his cloak, and he, you know, who knows what he's thinking. Like, put my hand in my cloak? Okay, whatever. Puts his hand in his cloak, and he pulls his hand out, and it's covered in white, scaly skin. It's falling off. Now, I don't know, the, the term leprosy can be used to describe all kinds of skin conditions, but we're going to focus on the concept of, or the idea of actual leprosy itself. Now, leprosy itself is a pretty nasty um, disease. Not nasty and gross, because what, I don't know if, what you think about leprosy. We kind of think of guys like zombies, like, you know, walking around, and then suddenly their arms, like, you know, fall off, and their noses are, like, falling. It's not really what happens. What happens with leprosy at the core of the, of, of the condition is that it rots your body basically from the inside out. Typically, it would start with white scales that showed up on your eye and your palms. And eventually, it would turn all of your hair white over your head until you have to shave your head eventually because it was required. But it would 
take all of your nerve endings and kill them. And so your arms wouldn't fall off or your fingers wouldn't fall off, but it would become dead to the point where you had no more feeling. And so if you were to, uh, there's an example, I read a story, there are leper colonies that still exist, and I read a story about a guy who visited a leper colony, and um, he was putting, a guy who was a leper, was they were going in some building or something, he had a key, and it was an older lock or something, it was kind of rusty, so he stuck the key in the lock, and he turned the key, and he couldn't get it, couldn't get it, he's like, yeah, hold on, we'll get it, we'll get it, well, because he didn't have any feeling in his hand, and he wasn't watching, he was turning so hard that his fingers all got cut open and bleeding, and he didn't even know. And so typically the leper will die because they get a broken bone and it gets infected and they don't know it or some kind of infection in their hand. They just don't, aren't aware. It just kills them. And we start to talk about the importance of pain and why that might be a good thing, but that's a whole other discussion. But the idea of a leper is this, this terrible condition that made you, as you go into the New Testament, you see, have to live outside of society. And you were ostracized. You had to uh, walk around with a torn um, uh, like dress or whatever you'd call it, some clothes. You have to shave your head. You'd have to tell people you couldn't even live in a, if it was a walled city. You couldn't live inside the city. You had to live on the outside of the city. And you have to declare unclean, unclean. Now, they weren't necessarily sure how it got. It wasn't to say, like, protect people from getting it because they weren't sure exactly how it was um, transmitted. But they viewed that as an affliction from the Lord himself. And so leprosy was this, it was terrible. It was as bad as you can get. And so Moses could have, you know, put his hand in there and come out with anything. Could have come out with, like, no fingers. Could have come out with, I don't know, boils. Could have come out with just a really bad cut. Who knows? But God decided to give him leprosy. Because at the, at the core of one of the reasons I think these people, and Moses himself, is, I don't know if I can follow you, God, Their first excuse is, this is way too big of a thing for you to do, God. Way too big. The obstacle is way too large, way too oppressive. There's no way you can do that. God says, yes, I can, and I will. He says, okay, even if you throw off that oppressor, even if you're able to get me out from underneath this terrible thing, there's no way you're going to be able to heal me. Because I've had time, years, all kinds of pain that there's no way is going away. I'm going to be dealing with it for the rest of my life. He says, no. One of the most beautiful pictures in The Passion of the Christ, I've only watched the film straight through once because I just can't. It's really hard for me to watch it. I remember watching it in the theater and like at the end it's going, but I had no response. I didn't know what to say. I think I might have cried. didn't want to see people like, don't make sure I'm crying. But one scene in that that gets me even today, that makes my throat get that tight way so you have the ugly face because you don't want people crying like, you know, I'm not going to do it. The one scene is when Christ, and I start telling the scene, people go, oh, I know which one. Christ is carrying the cross, and he's going through the street, and he falls. And they're like, oh, yeah, when the mom is seeing the kid? No. But when his mom runs up to him, is looking at him with tears in her eyes, and he simply looks at her and says, I make all things new. I make all things new. And these people are looking at their lives, this pain that they've experienced that, you know, let's be honest, it's probably unlike a lot we have ever experienced. Where you have families who have thrown their, had to have their children thrown into a river. Who've, families who've um, gone and worked for years upon years with, under a taskmaster who's trying to kill them. 
They're enslaving not so they can, I mean, the building program's a bonus, but they're trying population control. They are experiencing terrible, terrible oppression. Says Even if you throw him off, how can you ever bless us? Because he says, I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to come in and bless you and take you. He's like, yeah, right. But he uses this sign. Not boils, not a bad cut. He gives him leprosy, a disease that is completely incurable. It's incurable. And he cures it. And at the core, on the surface, I think he's saying, look, there, there was a goddess in Egypt that was in charge of skin diseases. And strangely, she's actually in that uraeus on that crown. She is represented by the fire that actually comes out of the cobra. I think her name is Sekhmet, is what it is. Fascinating to study. But she was destructive. In fact, I think I have some other names for her. Uh, she was called the one before, before whom evil trembles, the mistress of the dead, the lady of slaughter. This evil, destructive, painful thing that at some level, maybe the Israelites were trying to alleviate their pain. They, they could find some level of healing in life. But God says, look, there's a level of healing that you're never going to be able to achieve in this world. I don't care how many pills you pop, how many counsels you see, how many books you read. You have leprosy, and I'm the only one that can heal it. So no matter how the hope is, the beauty is that, first of all, they don't realize how sick they are. We kind of think sin has just kind of dented us a little bit, broken us a little bit. It's really made me have a difficult life. No, it has destroyed you. It has killed you or will kill you. And God comes and says, no. It doesn't matter how hopeless the situation is. It doesn't matter how broken you think you are. You don't got leprosy. But even if you do, I heal that too. And so in this beautiful promise, these two awesome promises, I'm going to deliver you how? I'm going to crush this king. And after I crush this king, I'm going to take you out and I'm going to make you whole and beautiful. Like taking a leper into someone who is once again beautiful. And you would think that after those two, uh, two miracles, that Moses would be like, yeah, all right. And God does a third thing to say, well, if they still won't believe you. And again, I think he's speaking more to Moses. Because Moses got his own fears about going in. Moses is thinking, I don't know how you're going to heal these people. Okay? And the third thing, he doesn't say, let me give you a third sign. He says, if they don't believe the two signs I gave you then do this. And this is where I think it gets really personal for me and, and for maybe for anyone else. He says, take a cup. And for Moses, it's a step of faith because there's no Nile running right there. So it's like, okay, I just have to imagine this will work. Take a cup. Scoop some water out. Pour it out in the ground. It's going to turn to blood. Now you have to understand about the Nile. The Nile was, if there's any god in Egypt that was worshipped, it was the Nile. And strangely, it's represented most by a goddess named Happy. Hmm, interesting. H-A-P-I. Could be Hoppy, but Happy sounds good. We'll go with that. Works better. So Happy was this strange, hermaphrodite, half-male, half-female goddess, like a guy with, like, you know what, and pregnant, and 
it was representative of the Nile who would basically plant seeds in uh, the delta or the land around that and then also nourish it because every year they would have these festivals to this goddess. And they would honor her and sacrifice her and worship her so that the once a year the Nile would continue to flood. And if the Nile flooded, the fertile silt and stuff would come out over onto the land and they would have a fertile crop to, to, or land to use to grow crops and to harvest those types of things. They worshiped this God. This was in many ways the God they had to worship because if the Nile did not flood regularly once a year, Egypt would die. Egypt would die. It would be barren. They would not have food. They would not have green. They would have nothing. And in many ways, for the Israelites, they worship the same God. They live in the land of Goshen. Joseph, particularly, when he came down, Joseph put him in this land of Goshen, which was a great pasture land, wonderful land, great land. But if the Nile doesn't continue to flood, even that land's going to go bad. Because what has to happen, or what the Israelites want to happen, is they need to have that same kind of blessing, basically. And at the core of what I think God is trying to do is he's attacking the idol that they all have, both Egyptians and the Israelites. Because the reality is some of us, including the Israelites, don't mind their oppression as long as their plates are full. In many ways, they will take the discomfort of the oppression, they will continue to live in their sin Because they like the comfort that comes with it. And God basically, instead of saying, let me give you a sign, I think for all of us, we'll say, I don't really need God. As long as my Nile overflows, I know it's kind of a tough life, but I'll get full pots and a full plate. And the Israelites even say that. Once Moses takes them out of Egypt, and God leads them across the Red Sea, Moses sings this really hip song, right? Okay, God bless you, we got through, God's honored. Within the next chapter, they're complaining about not having food. And they're wishing they were back in their oppression. Where it was comfortable. Where it was nice. But you were oppressed. I know, but we could eat. But your babies were thrown in the Nile. Well, got to make some sacrifices. I mean, the reality is, you ask yourself, why people will not follow God? Well, sometimes they are fearful. The oppression is too great. It will never happen. Maybe that's just hopeless. They are despairing. The healing, no way. There's no way you can heal me, God. I'm too broken. But the third one is this. Some people just love their stinking sin. They love it. And they would rather tolerate their sin than follow God. Because it's more comfortable, it's easier. Not realizing that they'll actually kill them. And I can't help but think that in today's culture, I don't know about you, but you click on the internet, it's like depressing every day. I read the news on the internet a lot, and it's like they always, what the news side would go, it always shows the graph of the stock market. It's always like, you know, down. I'm just wondering how down it is every day. And maybe I should be more concerned about it, but... Yeah, I'm just probably dense. But the fact is, you begin to see real quick how many people, maybe some of you, whose idol is those finances, 
whose security and hope is those finances. And I know, like, well, yeah, no doubt. I know. But think about it. We have a, a stack of, of or if we look at our life and go, okay, what am I? I am a husband. I am a father. I am a pastor. I am, maybe I have another job, whatever. And then a lot of that may be built on Christ. Okay, hopefully all that's built on Christ. But that's not what the typical looks like. The typical looks like, and I say typical because I think that the gate is wide to you know where and narrow to you know where. So the foundation here, if we just put money. My hope is in money. My security is in my job. My, you know, meaning and purpose is in the fact I can retire at age 42, whatever it is. And then you start stacking up the other stuff. I'm a dad. I'm a father. I'm a Christian. I'm a lawyer, whatever it happens to be, right? When that foundation gets knocked out, what happens? Everything else starts getting floppy. Suddenly, I'm a jerk of a husband. I'm a freak of a dad. Lawyer, I don't even care anymore because I don't got any money. I mean, all these things go crazy. But if Christ is that foundation, if God is that security, when those finances get knocked out, it hurts a little bit. But it doesn't shake my foundation. It doesn't shake it. I've got marriage problems. I'm just not the husband. Okay, but I go back to Christ. My sufficiency is in Christ. I can do this. And we start picking apart all the idols, all the personal, functional saviors we have here that are not Jesus. And you can figure this out real quick if you just imagine what your personal hell is. And a lot of people's personal hell in our world today is not having that nest egg. That's their security. And they really believe, we really believe, that that's safe. Even in the good times, they think, well, we're safe because we have this. And God comes in, in a very powerful way here, and kicks it out. He says, I'm going to take away the very thing that you depend on, both Egypt and Israel. Why? So that you'll know you need me. You can't say, well, I don't need you, God. We got denial. We don't got denial anymore. Now what? Uh, Egypt's going to die. We need you. We need you. And so in a very real way, God speaks directly to that final excuse. And then in verse 10, Moses says this. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken, your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. He's dealt with the excuses he had for Israel that maybe Moses didn't voice, but here are the excuses are going to come up with Moses. And then Moses is like, but I'm not eloquent. Throws out another one, but I'm not eloquent. So I understand that uh, all that stuff's going to work. You're going to give him signs of grace, and you're going to sign of judgment, and I understand that, but I'm not eloquent. Which is strange, because in Acts chapter 7, in talking about Moses' education while he spent 40 years in Egypt, he says he was educated in every way an Egyptian was, and became accomplished in word and deed. Maybe that just meant he was a really good writer. I don't know. But the fact is, it seems like he's pretty eloquent talking to God here, just fine. Could mean give him benefit of the doubt, could mean that he has maybe forgotten the diplomatic way to communicate because he was trained in that, I'm sure. It could be that the Hebrew talks about him being heavy in tongue. could be that he does have a speech impediment. Doesn't seem to be stuttering, but I don't really know how you write that in the text, so maybe he is stuttering through it. That'd be kind of interesting. But it could be also that he's forgotten his Egyptian. Whatever it is, he goes back to the original problem that he started to begin with. 
It's all about me, God. I can't talk. I can't follow you because um, I'm not able. I'm not competent. I won't be effective for you. I don't have X, Y, Z. And God says, he doesn't even come down. You would think he'd be like, because, I mean, honestly, sometimes with, you know, as a dad, that's what's like, come on, suck it up. What are you talking about? Oh, but he doesn't do that, praise God. And he comes, he's like, Moses, you're asking the wrong question again. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. And who am I? I'm the one that makes the people to speak, the people to see, and the people to hear, if I so choose, or not. I don't call somebody to something that I haven't equipped them for, because the reality is God knows you and I better than we know you and I. Way better. And so the question that we should not be, we shouldn't be asking questions. When God says, go do this, the last excuse we can come up with, well, you don't know what, really? You don't know what I've done, really? You don't know what I'm capable of, really? I know very much what you're capable of. My wife would be embarrassed for me to tell this, but this. I married my wife, and I did not know she was the woman she was. Now, if I did know that today, I would have sought her out when I was like 16. We got married pretty young, so we had to go way back then. But the fact is, I would hunt her down and marry her. But God didn't show me when I married her the amazing woman that she was. I don't mean amazing like, oh, you're so loving, although she is. I mean amazing that if you've ever seen her teach or you've ever seen her um, communicate, it's like, I remember watching her teach one time. She actually taught in front of little kids, well, little kids, parents too. And I'd never seen her teach before. I didn't think I was honestly waiting for like a train wreck. Okay, I was like, this is going to be bad. Because I was a teacher, so I'm like, Mr. Teacher Man, yeah. So I'm sitting there going, I hope this is not bad. Oh, my gosh. She, like, gets up there and is like, okay. And she's teaching, and I was blown away. But God knew that was there. God put those gifts in there. God saw that in there. I never saw that. And we sell ourselves so short in terms of not being able to fulfill this call that God has given us because, well, I can't do it. You don't know what you can do. And God's saying, why don't you take a stinking step? And see, Moses, I'm going to prove to you that I will deliver him. How? When I deliver him. Take some steps. I'm I'm not eloquent. You're asking the wrong questions. And then he says it again. But Lord, um, can you get somebody else? And this is where we get down to the rub. This is where we get down to the part where God slaps me all week and now I get to slap you. And that is this. Notice two times. He hasn't said it any time before this. Two times in both these comments he says, but oh my Lord. And he just can't help but think it's kind of flippant and disrespectful a little bit. Because he's like, oh my Lord. But I'm not eloquent. Like, you don't know. Oh my Lord. Can you get someone else? Okay, look. This is what God convicted me of this week. And that is, if you are going to declare God as Lord, you better stinking live like it. If you are going to say that Jesus is your Lord, then your life should evidence that. Because that's a huge claim. 
And he's, this is the first time God gets angry. And it's after he says, oh, my Lord, twice. And he's like, oh, my Lord. He didn't say this, but I, I sense like this is what he, oh, my Lord, are you kidding me? You don't really believe that. You don't really believe that. Because you don't live like that. If I'm really the Lord, then give me everything. Give me everything you have. Well, we'll, we'll give you a little bit. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. No. Then I'm not Lord. You are. You're either all in or you're all out. Because I'll address all your excuses. That's fine. I'll spend the time with you. But it gets to a point when it has nothing to do with your excuses and has everything to do with you believing you know how to live your life better than I do. And you know I'm God. I made you. I know it all. I see it all. So if you're going to say Lord, Moses, you better mean it. Otherwise, shut your trap. And Moses asks him in a very real way, can you just get someone else? Not, I can't do it. Now it's, I don't want to do it. Now, all of us, all of us here, are in some way Israel, in a lot of ways Moses. And all of us have been called to follow God. Now, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never met Jesus, just imagine I'm Moses, which is weird, because I'm not 80, and I don't have a staff, and I'm not a shepherd, and I'm not, you know, all those things. But I'm coming to you saying, look, God has appeared, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus came. And Jesus died for you because you've got leprosy and you won't admit it. And he's the only way you can be cured. And he took your place, lived the perfect, sinless life, and died as your substitute on the cross. Why? So you didn't have to. And he gives you this perfect life, free. He says, here. And if you accept that, you accept the righteousness that you cannot be right or healed unless you are right and healed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And once you accept that, he looks at you, and guess what? He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. That's why we take communion every Sunday to remind ourselves, not because of me, Jesus. Why should I accept you? You shouldn't. I'm a leper. But Jesus died for me. So, You're at that stage where God has appeared and you are just hearing that he's appeared and I pray to God that you accept his grace. But for those who say, and only you know in the privacy of your own home, in your own heart, in your own little prayer closet somewhere, of which I don't know if you have one, but if you do, that's cool. So, God, if you say I follow you, you are my Lord. If you say that, You've been called in the kingdom and you're in the kingdom and God is now saying, I'm calling you to do something. Everyone's got their own individual call, whether you are a student in high school or you are a grandparent that's retired and everywhere in between, you have a call. God did not go and die and call us just to be saved and then get fed and fat and that's it. He called us to do something. And he calls you to a specific... Now, some people, honestly, in this room, are called maybe across the globe. 
But some people aren't even called past their neighborhood. And some of you are going to fulfill a call where you are going to be known by thousands of people. And some of you, your call is never going to be known. It's going to be completely anonymous. No one will know what you've done. But God will. We've all received a call. And we kind of, I know for me as a husband and dad, that's my first call, way before being a call as a pastor. And if you're called as a husband or a bride, you can't make excuses for not living out your call as a husband or bride. If you're called as a parent, you can't make excuses about why I can't. It's too big. It's too tough. You can't make those excuses. Eventually those excuses lead to exactly where Moses is, where you refuse. I'm just not going to do it. That's your call. That's the beginning. All calls doesn't have to do with just ministry. But there's also that call where you are called. There's people that come across your path where you are called to deliver them in some way. To tell them and introduce them to your Lord, if he really is your Lord. And I love at the end of the passage, and we'll close on this, is that Moses cries out and says, please send someone else. Please let someone else do it. And God doesn't, he does get angry, but then he provides Aaron. He says, here's your brother Aaron. He can talk. And if you look at the Exodus, you look at, where Moses had to talk. Aaron doesn't do much talking. Moses does. And in many ways, God uses Aaron not to take his place, although he kind of says, like, don't worry, you'll do this. He doesn't really do it to take his place. He just does it to help him fulfill what God initially called him to do anyway. And that, honestly, is what this is about. A community of believers, the body of Christ is the place where you come in and we as brothers and sisters help each other to fulfill our calls. As individuals, we stir one another on. We encourage one another. We at times rebuke one another. But it's all to fulfill our calls. What is your individual call? That's a question that I think we all need to wrestle in. Is that what have I been called to do? Some of you are artists. Some of you are speakers. Some of you are people that just, I love to just serve people and love on people. What is your call? And the body of Christ is in many ways places where that can be fulfilled. And you can see, you know, you think about Brad. God bless him. Brad does amazing music. He's going to be like pissed that I said this. But I think he does amazing music. He writes some incredible music. I in many ways, am able to worship God through voice easier because of what Brad has been willingly done in following his call. But if Brad wasn't here, you know, if we didn't have this church, I don't know where he would be playing and fulfilling his call. Maybe in a different way. Maybe in the world out there just playing music and blessing people with his gifts. But this is a place where now he did. You see our spectacle out there, people writing. Some people are gifted writers. The body of Christ is a place where that call is fulfilled to go out on mission together. It's not individual. 
It's not individual. And so my prayer is that God honestly will break down all of your excuses to first follow Him in His kingdom. And when you're in the kingdom, He will break through your resistance and your refusal to follow Him in what He is calling you to do. But you have to ask Him maybe what that is. I'm not convinced that the burning bush is going to pop down in the middle of your hike on Mount Pilchuck next week. But it would be best for you to approach a holy God with humility and ask Him, what would you have me do? And don't let someone else's call dictate what yours is. What would you have me do? Let's pray. Father, I give you glory and praise for knowing all of us better than we know ourselves. I pray that your Spirit will direct all of us and show us in an apparent, mighty, and clear way what you would have us do in our time that you are leaving us here in this world, Lord. Let us not waste our lives. Let us not spend our time counting the hours away, but seeking, Father, how we might use what you've given us to serve you. Father, for those who are oppressed, I pray that you will show them in a mighty way that you are more powerful than an oppressor. For those who have experienced a tremendous amount of pain from that oppression, Father, that you will begin to heal them in a mighty way today. And that, Lord, you will remove all of our idols and place yourself there, that you will receive honor and glory. And let us all hold tightly to the cross for our sufficiency to fulfill all that you have told us to do. In Jesus' blood alone, we come into your presence. In his blood alone, we are empowered. And in his blood alone, we pray. Amen. Please stand and respond with us.